Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. Today we're going to look at the Urenfield culture. They are the ancestors of the Celts and Hallstatt culture. We raced through the Urenfield's ancestors like the Tumulus and other Stone and Bronze Age cultures. But before we move on to the Iron Age Celts, let's slow down, take stock, and dissect this particular culture and history. Now, the Urenfield culture, like I mentioned last time, is from 1300 to 750 BC. Obviously, one, one common way that we compare these prehistoric cultures to each other is through pottery. In the Urenfield culture specifically, we can tell that the, pro the pottery is already pretty well made. It has a smooth surface, normally sharply carinated profile. Carinated is kind of, think of like a bottleneck, like it tapers, it tapers uh, together towards the top. And some forms are thought to kind of imitate metal prototypes. And you even have biconical pots with a sort of cylindrical neck. Um, that's very common and kind of a, it's a very common characteristic of the, the Urenfield culture. There, are, there is some, we do see some pottery that has some incised decoration. But by and large, the surface is basically left plain. Uh, there's some, like in the shape, there's decoration, like you might have some fluted decoration. That's actually pretty common. In these Swiss pile dwellings, there's uh, the incised decoration was sometimes inlaid with a sort of tin foil. Now, one reason, that the one reason that the pottery is already pretty advanced is that, you know, kilns were already known, so the technology was there. Putting pottery aside for a minute, you do have other vessels of, like, cups of, like, beaten sheet bronze with riveted handles. This is like typical of the Yenoshovitsa type. And you also have large cauldrons with cross attachments. And then there were also wooden vessels. Now these have only been preserved in kind of a waterlogged context like, you know, swamps, rivers, whatever. But they have been found and are presumed to have been more common than we found them. You know, obviously wood just doesn't hold up very well over time, so it's kind of hard to say. Let's get to the good stuff. I want to hear about weapons, armor, that kind of thing. So the early Urenfeld culture, again around 1300 BC, there was definitely a time of warriors of Central Europe, and these could be heavily armored, um, including helmets, shields, all made of bronze. And again, the, this this might sound familiar to people. And we, I talked really briefly about these trade networks that might have existed all the way down to the Mediterranean, or almost certainly existed. Um, throughout, you know, from Eastern to Western Europe, but also North to South, it's suspected, it has been um, kind of hypothesized that this, I this idea of bronze armor may have come from cultures like Mycenaean Greece around, around the Mediterranean. It's really not that far-fetched. One difference between the Tumulus culture, which came before them, and the Urenfield culture are their swords. So the Urenfield culture had more of a leaf-shaped sword, which could be used for slashing, 
which contrasts the sort of stabbing sword of the preceding tumulus culture. It also commonly commonly had a ricasso, and ricassos are interesting. So it's new to me that ricassos go this far back. A, a ricasso is an unsharpened bit of the blade that's basically the lower part of the blade between the hilt and blade. And it's very common throughout European history, all the way up to the Renaissance and beyond. Um, and I, you know, when I think of, of a sword with a ricasso, that, that lower bit that's not sharpened, I definitely think of a medieval broadsword or, uh, you know, a, a later, even later than, than medieval sword. So it's interesting to me that, that it goes that far back. We're talking Bronze Age, and we would already recognize some pretty advanced swords, even if they're made out of bronze. Um, speaking of things like ricassos and hilts, uh, I have a feeling I'm going to learn quite a few new German vocabulary words when I do my German translation this time around. But anyways, the, the hilt was normally made from bronze as well. It was cast separately and made of a different alloy. But sometimes you, we also see hilts made from wood, bone, antler. You know, again, we, we mentioned how huge the range of the Yernfield culture is, east to west particularly. So there is quite a bit of local variation, but there are also some... Overall common aspects and then they also did have protective gear like shields and cuirasses a cuirass is like torso protection Not necessarily a breastplate, but but you know the same the same idea and greaves which is shin armor and helmets Now these are much more rare. We have a great example Maybe the best known example of a bronze shield is from Pilsen or maybe that's because I live in, in Prague I don't know, but um, it's, it's definitely very well known a bronze age um, shield from from that era and that's from the Yernfield culture for instance that one has a riveted handhold riveted to the the back of the shield now cuirasses like I said are rare those are cuirasses are the torso protection let's say and but those have been found and again sometimes we're not talking breastplate we're talking sometimes they're like bronze plates sewn onto leather armor and then greaves the the shin armor are we, we see we have some examples of richly decorated sheet bronze from the Kloštar Ivanets in Croatia and also the Paulos cave near Beuron in Germany. And one of the most fascinating things that I found about the Yernfield culture was the use of chariots in burials, but also just, um, you know, chariots in general found, you know, chariot remains found. And these were treated with great respect, apparently, but there's about a dozen wagon burials Found. These are four-wheeled chariots, kind of wagons, with bronze fittings, and they're, they're known from the early Yernfield period, from Germany, Switzerland, and far, far beyond. In, in Alts, Germany, the chariot was placed on a pyre, and pieces of bones are attached to the partially melted metal of the axles. And bronze, kind of one-part bits, like, you know, for, for a horse, um, appear at the same time, and then two-part bits are known from late Yernfield context and may be due to a sort of eastern influence. So two-part two horse bits were, were found further east earlier back. And then we have wood and spoked wheels. These are known from Stade, Germany. Wooden, wooden spoked wheels from Mercuraggio in Italy. And then we also have wooden dish wheels, which have been uh, excavated in places in Switzerland and Germany with a diameter of about 80 centimeters. So we're talking about a 31-inch rim. In Milavce, near Domaglice in Bohemia, 
four-wheeled miniature bronze wagons bearing a large cauldron. Now the cauldron is about a foot uh, in diameter, maybe 30 centimeters, which contained a cremation. And this exceptionally rich burial was actually covered by a barrow, which again, that's back to the tumulus culture. So here we have, um, you know, this is a maybe a very important person that was buried here. So we see kind of um, both you know, a, a mix between the tumulus culture and the Yernfield culture, but this is clearly um, within the time frame of the Yernfield culture. And such wagons, these chariots, are also known from the Nordic Bronze Age. And we have, for instance, there's examples, there's, there's a, a somewhat famous example of a wagon burial in Denmark. And in Mecklenburg, we also see examples of very rich grave goods accompanied in inhumation under a barrow. So, you know, again, another, this mix of Tumulus and Yernfield, and even as far north as Sweden. And additional examples come to us from Hungary and Romania. And then we also have clay miniature wagons. So the wagon as a symbol in some way, or a representation of a wagon, often with waterfowl, and I'll get back to this later, because this is, this kind of ties into their, um, perhaps their belief systems, their religion. And these were known since the Middle Bronze Age, um, for instance, in Serbia and other places. And then there's a Lusatian chariot from Burg in Brandenburg, and that, which has three wheels on a single axis, again with a waterfowl perch. And there's a grave in Gamatingen, also in Germany, which contained two socketed horned applications that probably belong to a miniature wagon, comparable to this Burg example together with six miniature spoked wheels. So maybe two axes with three wheels each. Um, so definitely between the waterfowl and perhaps even three wheels on an axle, maybe some, some interesting significance that, you know, obviously we can, we can really only guess at. And hordes have also been found. I found this interesting in context of the Yernfield culture because um, this practice, specifically the Yernfield practice of hordes, ended in the Bronze Age. So this sets the Yernfielders apart from later Celtic cultures. And now in this case, they were often deposited in rivers or wet places like swamps. And because, and so obviously there are many reasons for hordes. Um, I spoke about this with Dabudla when I visited him in, in Wittenberg in Germany. And for a really great, phenomenal look at some later Saxon hordes and Viking hordes, do see the British History Podcast. Um, the host of that show interviewed some of the people who worked with hordes in England directly. So, he, I mean, he, he really shed some great insight there. In this case, in the Yernfield hordes, because the hordes were hard to get back to, as in, you know, they were hidden in swampy places, it's thought that these might be some sort of offering to gods. Again, other hordes existed for other reasons, and there was not a continuation from these Yernfield hordes to cultures like the later Viking hordes, for instance, or Saxon hordes. So um, that, that's something I want to point out. So um, again, I, we, I talked about the Germanic tribes in some of my first shows, and now I'm talking about these predecessors to the Celtic tribes in, in this series, and that's because they're, they're not necessarily related. They, you know, they might have done some, there's some things in common. We are talking about Bronze Age here, um, and there's some overlap, but probably through trade more than actual culture or um, possibly genetics. You know, there, there's definitely a difference here, and I want to make that clear. So we're not talking about one continuous thing from Scandinavia all the way to Italy. This, there's definitely a cutoff point. That's why I brought, off, 
brought up the uh, Weisswurst or or Hefeweizen equator at the last episode. There is there is that line, and in some ways you can still see that line today. So when I talk about hordes, don't my point is if I, if I, when I talk about hordes, don't confuse this with later Viking hordes or their intentions. Some of the hordes contained either broken or miscast objects that probably were intended for reuse by bronze smiths. So. Uh, you know, like a hiding place that you could come back to later and dig it up and, and reuse these objects. And these get more and more advanced as we progress through time. So late Urenfeld hordes often contain, contain the same range of objects as earlier graves. Some scholars interpret hoarding as a way to kind of supply personal equipment for the hereafter. So, you know, you, you bury a hoard and then uh, the people living in the afterlife can get to it. In the river Trieur in, in Côte du Nord, complete swords were found together with numerous antlers of red deer that may have had some sort of religious significance. Now iron was found. I know we're talking about the Bronze Age, but you know, for instance there's there's an iron, ray, iron ring um, found in Germany dating to the 5th century BC. Uh, this is kind of the earliest evidence of iron in Central Europe. During the Bronze Age, iron was used to decorate the hilts of swords, uh, knives and pins, and the use of iron for weapons and domestic items in Europe didn't come around until the Iron Age. So, I mean, that should be pretty obvious, but um, I just want to point that out. So if you see an iron artifact in a, in a museum, um, and it might be a sickle-shaped razor or a pin or just a decoration in the hilt, those did exist in the Bronze Age already. Now, when we move forward to the Iron Age and we cover things like the, the very famous Hallstatt culture, or the Laten culture, which the Laten culture are basically the Celts that the Romans kind of incorporated and wiped out, then we're definitely talking about iron, uh, iron weapons and household items, but not yet. So if we can try to get a glimpse of the sort of daily life of some of these urine field fielders and not just what they were buried with, we do have evidence that they kept cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, also horses and dogs, possibly geese. Now the, the cattle were kind of small, maybe a, a, a meter 20 in height. We're talking like, what, four feet. Um, and horses were not much bigger. So, you know, almost, almost along the lines of ponies, really. And another thing that I found very interesting for trying to get this, this glimpse of daily life is that we we do have evidence that forest clearance was intense in the Urenfield period. So when we're talking about um, the European landscape, probably open meadows were created for the first time in Europe. And this, this has been shown by pollen analysis. And this would have also led to increased erosion and sediment load of the rivers. So now we actually see humans seriously impacting the European landscape for the first time which I, I thought was pretty interesting. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I specifically picked out the Urenfield culture and, and not an earlier culture to kind of um, stop and pause and take a closer look at. Now, wheat and barley were cultivated uh, together with pulses, like we're talking peas, sort, some sorts of beans, lentils, that kind of thing, uh, the fava bean. And poppy seeds were also known and used for oil um, or pop possibly as a drug already. So they already knew about poppies. That's maybe the fact of the podcast for me. 
Millet and oats were cultivated for the first time in Hungary and Bohemia. Now, rye was already cultivated, but further west, where, where we're the area that we're looking at, it was mostly just considered a noxious weed. So rye wasn't really cultivated for consumption yet. Now, flax actually decreased in, in importance, maybe because um, wool was used for clothes. So if we're looking at earlier cultures like the tumulus and before, flax had a, a higher significance than it did for the yarn fielders. So that's why, you know, sheep, sheep was important. We do have, um, you know, sheep remains and, and wool and that kind of thing. But in addition to this, like any solid um, European culture, we have filberts or hazelnuts, if you will, apples, pears, sloes, acorns. These were all collected and stored. And some of the very kind of wealthy graves contain bronze, bronze sieves that some interpret as wine sieves. Um, these specifically, these were found on hot on the Alts. You know, wine obviously would have been imported from the south, but the supporting evidence for this is lacking. In a settlement in, in Zug, both remains of spelt and millet have been found. In the lower Rhine-Urenfelds, leavened bread was often placed on the pyre and therefore um, burnt fragments have been preserved and so we, you know, we, we now can see this. And wool was spun, so basically finds of, of spindle whorls are common, and wool was spun and woven on these, on what's known as a, on a warp-weighted loom, and bronze needles were used for sewing. So that we definitely have wool and we have, um, you know, wool textiles and manufacture and that kind of thing. And another theory that I like, because it would shed some light on the day-to-day -day living of these urine fields, urine fielders, is that there's some suggestion that the urine field culture is associated with a wetter climate than perhaps the earlier tumulus culture. And this may be associated with the diversion of the mid-latitude winter storms, which we get north of the Pyrenees and the Alps, and possibly associated with drier conditions in the Mediterranean. Um, I just think that's interesting. So we, we can almost kind of um, get an idea of, you know, the difference of weather patterns in tumulus to urine field cultures in a very general sense. And this is, again, you know, a theory. Um, it's hard to prove that kind of thing. But, but I did find that fascinate, fascinating. And now if we get to some of the possibly spiritual um, beliefs or, you know, some of the religious significance of, of, of what these people might have be believed... Um, you know, a great insight into this is their funerary practices, kind of, look, you know, looking at their grave sites. And in the tumulus period, we see multiple inhumations under barrows, at least for the upper levels of society. In fact, that's how they got their name. As I mentioned last episode, a barrow is basically a burial, a burial mound. And in fact, German, in German, the tumulus culture is called burial mound culture. Um, I guess this sentence will be really redundant when I translate this to German, so, uh, yay? In the Yernfield period, inhumation and burial in single flat graves prevail, so no longer those burial mounds, though some barrows exist, like I mentioned, especially, you know, with the chariots and that kind of thing. And like I really tried to point out in the last episode, this was a gradual transition, possibly over centuries. So we do have a mix of the cultures for quite some time before we see the Yernfield culture you know, really having their own beliefs and their own system. And in the earliest phases of the Urnfield period, you do have these man-shaped graves dug, 
sometimes with a stone lined floor and then you and then they would place the the cremated remains of the deceased they were kind of spread so i thought it's interesting that that, that they're they're cremating the remains but they're still digging a man-shaped uh, grave only later so if not, so they're still spreading the ashes but then we have a slow evolution of them burying the remains in urns and some spec some scholars do speculate that this may have marked a kind of shift in people's beliefs or the myths about life and the afterlife um you know that that does make sense to me um you know the way people are um, buried and cremated and then uh, and then set aside does reflect on what they believed was necessary to do for the afterlife so um i think that's you know it's it's pretty safe to say that something must have changed as far as their belief system. Now the, si the size of the urn fields are variable. In Bavaria, they contain hundreds of burials. And burial, Bavaria is, I hope I haven't said this before, I'm sure I'll say it a million times again, but Bavaria is kind of like the Texas of Germany. They don't do anything small. See Oktoberfest. Actually, I can't wait for that episode. That's, that's going to be awesome. But and I wonder how my German listeners will feel about me saying things like this, but the, the largest cemetery in Baden-Württemberg, for instance, is only 30 graves. In Bavaria, you see a much larger um, um, kind of graves. And again, uh, the urine fielders are not related, um, by and large, to modern Bavarians. Of course, the, the um, urine fielders didn't just disappear, but um, the, the, when the Germanic tribes came in, the, you know, they came in in mass. So it's hard to, I wouldn't make too many connections between uh, modern Bavaria, Bavarians and anything I say about, you know, Urenfield, Bavaria. So in general, uh, as, as I've kind of alluded to, the dead were placed on pyres. Now they were also covered in personal jewelry, which often shows traces of the fire and sometimes also food offerings. The cremated, the cremated bone remains are much larger than in the Roman sort of same sort of uh, cremation pyres, which indicates that less wood was used. So, you know, the, the bones are less thoroughly burned, basically. Now, often the bones have been incompletely collected, and most urine fields are abandoned with the, end, with the end of the Bronze Age, and only the lower Rhine urine fields continue into the Hallstatt, basically the early Iron Age, Hallstatt C, and sometimes D cultures. Now there's a there's a quite a big range here. So sometimes the bo the bones were just placed in simple pits. Sometimes there's a, a very dense concentration of the bones indicates, uh, like I've said, and sometimes the bones were simply shattered. So if if the bones were placed in in urns, these were often covered by a shallow bowl or stone, and in a special type of burial called bell graves, the urns are completely covered by an inverted larger vessel. As graves rarely overlap, they may have been marked by wooden posts or stones, right? Do you follow the logic there? So if, if you don't have overlapping graves, which means they must have known where the graves were above, above the actual burial, and stone markers um, above graves are typical in the Unstrut group, for instance. So we, we know this for a fact from some peoples, um, but we assume this of basically across the board. Uh, since there was no accidental unburial of, uh, in, within the urn fields. These graves also contained sort of gifts. You know, they're, they're accompanied by sort of sm smaller ceramic vessels, bowls, cups, they, which may have contained food for the afterlife, very much as in a, just like in an Egyptian pyramid, for instance. Um, the urn is placed in the center, 
and then all the other stuff kind of around it. Now, the, the gifts that are along with the grave were not placed on the pyre, so there's, there's, no, there's no fire damage with this. So the remains were burned, and some things along with the remains were burned, but then extra, extra gifts were placed in the burial. And some other objects include things like metal, grave gifts, like razors, weapons which have often been deliberately destroyed, like bent or broken. Then there's like jewelry like bracelets, pendants, pins. Metal grave gifts become rarer towards the end of the Urnfield culture, while the number of hordes increase, which I also find interesting. So this also kind of shows a, a shift in belief systems, possibly. Or maybe it was just um, a way to guard against th theft. If you know that all the graves are marked with a stone, then maybe the metal precious artifacts you hide somewhere in a swamp. And, you know, that way the deceased might know where to find it in the afterlife, but thieves don't. That's, you know, that's just speculation. The Martin bones in the grave of Seddon may have belonged to a garment. And then we also see amber or glass beads, which were very rare and definitely considered luxury items. If we get even more into the kind of luxury range, we do see some upper-class burials that were placed in wooden chambers and sometimes, but very rarely, stone cysts or chambers with a stone-paved floor and then covered with a barrow or cairn. And these graves contain especially finely made pottery, animal bones, usually pork, sometimes gold rings or sheets, in exceptional cases, those miniature wagons that I thought were so awesome earlier. Now, some of these rich burials contain the remains of more than one person. In this case, women and children are normally seen as sacrifices, so they were all um, burned at the pyre at the same time. Until more is known about the status distribution and kind of social structure of the Late Bronze Age, this interpretation really should be seen with a, with a grain of salt. It's, this is not certain, but what we do have is, you know, a, a man, women, and children all buried together, which means they, were all, they all died at the same time. And then also towards the end of the Urnfield period, which I found was interesting, we see some bodies which were burned in situ and then covered by a barrow. Uh, if you've read Homer, this is kind of reminiscent of the burial of uh, Patroclus and then also of Beowulf, for instance. Now, Beowulf had the additional ship burial element, but, but so we do see kind of a shift towards the very edge of the Bronze Age. And then in the early Iron Age, suddenly you had inhumation and, and no longer cremation. So another, you know, with the Iron Age came another big shift in possibly belief systems and uh, religious practice. But what's a good podcast without human sacrifices and cannibalism, right? So the Kifhäuser Caves in, in Thüringen and Thuringia contain headless skeletons and split human and animal bones, which have been interpreted as sacrifices. We have other, there's other deposits in, like grain, knotted vegetable fibers, hair, bronze objects, axes, pendants, pins, uh, the usual, I suppose. And, but, and also in the Canovis culture, human bones with cut marks and traces of burning have been found in settlement pins, and they have been interpreted as evidence for cannibalism. As these bones form a large part of the burials known, this, this may have been a quite regular treatment, including the ritual manipulation and dismemberment of human corpses. Also of probably some religious significant is that we, we find uh, moon-shaped clay fire dogs, which is also known as an andiron, which is basically an iron bar, uh, you know, set above a fireplace so you can hang stuff off, off of it. 
And then there's also the, the if you see a picture of these iron crescent-shaped razors, um, it's, I like, I want to jump to the conclusion that this has something to do with the later sickle cult, but it's not. This is, this is much um, more, pre more previous, but it does have that sickle shaped, but the attachment, like the handle, is more in the middle than towards the bottom. So it's, you know, I, I wouldn't draw any connections there. It just, it just looks very similar. Um, but still, potentially, could have been sort of a cult object or, or, you know, had some religious significance tied to it. And then earlier I mentioned these water birds. Well, there's numerous pictures of water birds and also three-dimensional representations like sculptures. Um, and these are always combined with the hordes deposited in rivers and swamps. And I would say that that's a pretty strong indication that there's some religious belief connected with water, these waterfowl, and, and you know, these practices, that there, there is some connection there. I, I thought the weather was interesting because this has led some scholars to kind of speculate or, or uh, create theories that while I said it was very wet climate-wise during much of the Yernfield culture, but possibly by the end of the Bronze Age, it might have been you know, they might have been going through some, some pretty serious droughts. Again, these are just some theories floating out there, but now we have significance tied to water and waterfowl and hordes being buried in water. It's um, kind of hard to say. A very, a very common motif is that water birds are combined with circles, and, and which is the so-called sun bark motif, like sun boat motif. So now we've looked at the ancestors of the Celts. Let's forever leave the focus of the Bronze Age behind us. This is, by the way, a big milestone, guys. So, um, the, you know, I've been looking forward to this moment for a long time when we can kind of move forward and get to the Iron Age. And next time, and remember, if you want to help, uh, help me out, you can help out tremendously by rating the History of Germany show on iTunes. That really uh, get, gets a lot of attention to the show and really helps out tremendously. And next time... We're going to finally get to the what we today call the Celts, starting with the Hallstatt culture, and see how far we get. So I'm, tra I'm Travis Dow, and thank you very much for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.